Howdy ho, bingers! In this bonus episode, I'm joined by the hosts of the Down the Hill podcast. They spent a year diving deep into the still unsolved murders of Abby Williams and Libby German, also known as the Delphi murders. This is a case that continues to keep me and many others up at night. Please welcome Barbara McDonald and Andrew Iden. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Barbara and Drew, thank you guys so much for for taking time to join me. I, there, there's a lot of podcasts where I'm really dying to get into the podcast and the production, and then there's some some of these where I'm really dying to get into the case. And this one is 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 more of the latter because this case is so frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, it's it. And I've I, I remember when it first you know was on the news three years ago. And and being you know really intrigued by it and frustrated by it then, and you guys kind of breathed new life into it and has me down. I've I spent the last two nights I'm driving my wife crazy because I'm on my phone on Google Maps and I'm. <laughs> it's like I just, someone's got to be able to solve this case. It, it, exactly. When you first learn about it, it seems like this is a no brainer. We can put this together very easily, and here we're approaching four years, and it hasn't happened yet. Oh, it's and so frustrating. your wife is having the same reaction that my wife and Barb's husband are having, which is, <laughs> oh my god, really? There's no answers yet, and it's just, yeah, it's absolutely maddening that you know we've gotten to this point, and there's still you know so much that we don't know. Yeah, and what's so frustrating about it is it's like it feels like the answer is right there. Well, we can see him <laughs> right. and we can hear him on video, mm-hmm. like at the beginning of this crime. And you would think, I mean, you you don't often hear of a victim being able to capture video of the person who attacked them as the attack is beginning. Right. And you would think when you hear that that exists that Duh. I mean, how do we not know who he is? Right. But we don't. We've used the analogy a couple times of uh, this is like watching a movie and getting, you know, 70% of the plot, but there's just huge black screens like at various points throughout the plot. And then it's like, well, now I, you know, I think I know what happened, but I'm not sure. And it's right. just it's like uh, massive redactions in the middle of yeah, your, exactly, of your movie. and uh, yeah, it's like right there in front of your face, but yet it's not even close, and it's just insanity, right? And so you guys took this crazy case and you made an amazing podcast out of it. Um, so I want to learn a little bit about you. I guess since you spoke last, I'll start with you, Drew. Uh, what is your background, and and how did you end up working on this podcast? So I've been at HLN since 2005, and I spent um, nine years with uh, the team that did the Nancy Grace show. So I, you know, true crime and criminal stuff is, for whatever reason, it's just kind of found its way into my lap, and it's kind of all I've done. Um, I didn't Mm -hmm. seek out to work in true crime. It just kind of ended up that way. Um, So 
you know, I was working on um, that program for a long time. And then I worked with Ashley Banfield, who did uh, a show on HLN called uh, Crime and Justice. And so we, you know, dabbled in, and that's the show I was working on when this story broke and it ha- first, obviously first happened. And um, so we covered it a lot then. Barb worked kind of elsewhere at the network, but also working on the case. Um, so this was a case that was familiar to both of us. And, you know, um, I had done some work in, on some, some other podcasts. And so when HLN wanted to jump into the podcast space, they were kind of like, Barb, you know the story inside and out. Drew, you kind of understand the podcast space. Let's pair you guys up and, you know, let's jump into this thing. And so, you know, there was really no question from the beginning about what case HLN would use as their first foray into podcasting because this was a case that the network had, you know, flooded the zone, as we call it, which was, you know, putting people on the ground, getting involved in 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 the case, learning who the players are. And so it was a huge story for HLN from the beginning. So it was really kind of a no-brainer um, mm-hmm. to, you know, first kind of sink our teeth into this case and try to figure out what happened. So that's a little, you know, that's kind of the background of how I kind of landed, you know, working on this story. And uh, of course, Barb has kind of been our editorial lead on this thing, you know, at HLN for a long time. So, um, but that's my, that's my story. So uh, that's where, you know, that's how I landed here. Had you guys worked together on any projects before, or did you guys get introduced with this project? We we knew of each other because our our two different show teams, when he was on the Ashley show, I was on the Michaela show, and our team sat next to each other. Mm-hmm. So we kind of were aware of each other. We had engaged in a couple of conversations, but that was really about it. Um, so this project was really the first time I, I ever worked with him on anything in depth and boy, was it in depth. I mean, Drew and I ended up spending probably what, six months sitting in a conference room alone with our other producer, Dan on video link from California. And that's how we put the podcast together. And so we spent a lot of time together getting to know each other on this project. Barb was my work spouse for a long time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We, uh, we hadn't worked together. And in fact, um, and now we've traveled together multiple right, times. Right, right, right. So, uh, no, we, yeah, we had not worked together, um, until this project, but, uh, you know, it was clear from the beginning that Barb had a passion for the story and kind of knew it inside and out. So it was, uh, it was a blessing to be paired with her. Did, uh, Drew, did you start like right out of high school? Start a path towards this uh, media and journalistic field, or did you ever have any other career aspirations? Or funny or you should ask. That? I uh, actually started before I got out of high school. My first job in journalism was a sports writer for the local paper in my hometown when I was seventeen, and so my mother was a newspaper reporter for a while, and so I honestly like there was never any other career that I considered. I just always knew Mm -hmm. what I was going to do, which was a blessing and a curse in a lot of different ways. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I you know I started in in newspapers in high school, went to college, majored in communications, did radio, TV, you know all the all the different things, and uh, moved to Atlanta in 2003 uh, to work for CNN in their um, the entry level job is called a video journalist, which I always say there is. no video, nor is there journalism involved in the job. <laughs> right. It's, it's essentially, I was the guy standing there telling the anchors which cameras to look at. You know, the guy with the headset. Right, right. So, so yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I never, there was never any other 
career field that I was looking to get into. It's just always been this. So, God, I've changed my career so many times. I'm a little jealous <laughs> of people who knew what they wanted to do at that age. Yeah. Uh, how about you? How about you, Barb? What's your background? Uh, I had more of an unconventional path. I sort of bounced around and cobbled college together along the way while working various jobs. I was a flight attendant for six years. I worked for a magazine. I dabbled in radio for a little bit. And uh, then I stumbled into TV in a very tiny market in St. Joseph, Missouri, and absolutely fell in love. Like to be able to put video with my story just made so much sense to me and it all clicked and I found my home. And so I've just always been in and around TV stations ever since. Ended up at CNN International six years ago. And from there had a friend who was starting a show at HLN, the Michaela show, and uh, asked me to come over. And that's how I found HLN and then fell in love with the true crime and being able to explore these stories in much more depth than you ever could at a local television station. Well, that's awesome. And, and, and you've given me some some fodder for the hard-hitting questions that I like to ask as a, as a journalist. I'd like to know a little bit more about your six years as a flight attendant. <laughs> <laughs> for Hawaiian Airlines. It was a blast. I'm from oh, Hawaii wow. originally, born and raised. And so I had some friends who were already doing it. And I was kind of, I didn't want to go to college right after high school. And Hawaiian was hiring. And I went for the interview. And they liked me. And yeah, so I, I did that for a while and, and loved it, really loved it. It sounds like such a cool, especially for like a young single person, it sounds like a really cool job. Oh, exactly. And to travel the South Pacific and we were doing military charters. We did flights to Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and Iceland carrying troops around for Desert Storm and Desert Shield and um, got to see, you know, the whole world. And it was an amazing experience. Is it is it like the Gwyneth Paltrow movie with the <laughs> with the scarves? Is that was that your rank? The color scarf you were wearing? Um, no, we were a little more uh, relaxed in our uniform style because we were in so many hot climates. We and you know, being Hawaiian, we had more of the aloha attire. Right. <laughs> um, you know, everything was floral. Um, the comedian Tracy Ullman was on one of our flights and had a bad experience and told the story on The Tonight Show. And she made fun of our uniforms and called them polyester day glow <laughs> uniforms. And we were like, yeah, that kind of described it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's awesome. And so, and then both you end up in this, in this same space where you're working in true crime for, for HLN and put together this great podcast. And I, I'm ready to dig into the case at this point. I was wondering, Barb, if it'd be possible for you to lead us into our break before we start discussing the case in your best mix of flight attendant, take your, <laughs> fasten your seatbelts, <laughs> and here we go. Fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen, because this is going to be a wild ride. Stay tuned. Okay, so before we start getting into really open discussion about the case, uh, can you guys break down, however, between the two of you want to split it up, but break down the basic elements of the case as far you know for anybody that that isn't aware of the Delphi murders or the murders of of Abby Williams and Libby German in Delphi Indiana give us just kind of the basic beats of the case sure all right i'll i'll start with the crime itself and then Drew can get more into the investigation to this point um 
It was February 13th of 2017. It was a a unseasonably warm day in Delphi, Indiana. It was 46 degrees, but sunny and warm. And after a really brutal winter, you know, the kids had a day off from school. It was one of those snow days that wasn't needed as a snow day. So it just became a day off. And uh, Libby and Abby had a sleepover at Libby's house. And they wanted to go to the historic trails the next day. There's a abandoned railroad trestle that's 60 feet above a creek. It's absolutely beautiful. And on a sunny day, it's the Instagrammable spot in Delphi. All of the kids like to go there. It was a very popular place to go. Drew and I have been there many times and people use these trails a lot. It's a very popular spot. So the girls get dropped off about 1.30 in the afternoon. They were supposed to be picked up at three. And uh, when dad called to say I'm on my way to pick them up, there was no answer. He got to the trails, no sign of the girls. Within about an hour and a half, the police are called because there's just no sign of them. And uh, they're 13 and 14 years old, starting to get cold as it's getting dark. And uh, police are called. They begin a search. Hundreds of people come out and participate in this search all over town looking for these girls. There's just no sign of them. And then the next day, just before noon, their bodies were found about 50 feet from the creek, about a quarter mile from the bridge, in an area that they didn't fall there. They didn't, you know, fall into the creek. They didn't slide down a hill. There was no reason for them to be there. And uh, it was pretty apparent from the beginning that they had been murdered. And uh, so the police launched a massive investigation. The FBI was involved. They found one of the girls' phones. Liberty had recorded some video, and it included a man walking up to them on the bridge and saying, down the hill. And that's all that police ended up releasing to give us an indication of what might have happened and and help them look for the person who did this. See, this is why we have Barb rehash the crime because she knows literally every waking (laughs) second of the story. And I will pick up the ball, but there will be points where I'm going to turn to Barb and say, hey, Barb, check me on that because she kind of fills in the blanks because the the timeline really gets blurry because what you have in the wake of that is... You know, over the course of the next uh, three years, you have a series of police press conferences, announcements. You know, there's the, you know, they find the video on um, on Libby's phone. But of course, we didn't know that was video in the very, very beginning. All we knew was there was a still. And so we have this still of this guy on the bridge. And so the first thing we get is a still. As time unfolds, you know, that still then becomes video and that video becomes, oh yeah, there's also audio involved. So by the time, you know, a year or so has passed, we've got this, you know, this picture that's painted of this guy in large kind of seemingly oversized clothing, jeans, a coat. Um, Some people see a hat. Some people don't see a hat. It depends on who you talk to. And you hear him say down the hill. And so the 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 aftermath of this is these these different points where the police are giving these pieces of information which you would think in so many different ways it would clear things up but all it does is just muddy the waters 
And so, um, you know, they released the first sketch, which is kind of a, I don't know if you're guessing age, probably early forties, late thirties, a bit of scruffle on his face, um, the cap. And, uh, so that's the first sketch they release, And then at the new direction presser, as we call it, which was in, um, Barb, check me on the April of 2019, April 2019. Right. So in April of 2019, police convene a new, a press conference and say, you know, they called Barb, they called HLN and said, Hey, you guys should be here. And so at that press conference, you know, there's this anticipation of this huge announcement, this massive change and this massive break in the case. And they release a new sketch and the new sketch. And depending on who you talk to (laughs) looks (laughs) nothing like the first sketch. That's my personal opinion. Other people have varying opinions and they of course release you know, what they, what's described as additional audio. And so what happens is they play out this additional audio. And in addition to down the hill, you have guys, the first part of that audio where the guy on the bridge is instructing Abby and Libby and, you know, whether it's a greeting or some sort of, you know, initially, you know, initiating communication says guys down the hill. And so, you know, coupled with all of that is this passionate statement from Indiana State Police and their superintendent, Doug Carter, who says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, we believe this person that's responsible may be in this room, which of course sets off, you know, everybody's looking over everybody's shoulders. Everybody in town is pointing fingers at different people. And the fear factor is just ratcheted up kind of to a whole new, new level. Barb can speak to being in that room because I was not in that room. Barb was there, though, on the ground for, for the network and uh, could probably give a little bit more insight about what that felt like, though, in that room. It was, uh, it was shocking. It was the most shocking press conference I've ever attended. And as a journalist, I've attended many over the years for all sorts of different events and, and scales. And uh, this was just unbelievable, the drama in the room. And... Uh, we actually talked to somebody for the podcast who said, you know, it felt like the minute Doug Carter was done talking that he was going to get out from behind that podium and make the arrest right there in front of us. Mm-hmm. And that is what it felt like. You felt like if it's not going to happen in this room, they know where this guy is and they're going and they're getting him right now. I mean, I fully expected the next couple of days to be very chaotic as we chased who this person was and where they were holding him and where they were going to bring him for his first court appearance and all of those things. That's what I was thinking in my mind. See, when I listened to that, I definitely got that feeling. But then after really kind of breaking down the substance of that press release, I kind of got the feeling that the major purpose of that press release was to draw him out more than it. Because, you know, as Drew said, like it was what we really got out of that was a new sketch. And then, and then they also asked for people to um, give information about a car parked right. at the at the building around the corner, and then additional audio, which consisted of the word "guys" before down the hill. They release a whole lot of information for that for as much fanfare as he as he put out there. And so, mm-hmm. and so, and then you guys said on the on the podcast that when you came in, everybody had to write down and register their names, and that's that. My thought was they're trying to draw this guy out and you know i have to imagine they were either videoing or taking photos of every single person that walked in that room as well 
Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the things that some of our, our law enforcement analysts have said is that the venue that they chose had a very large parking lot and you do that so that while everyone's inside, you can be going around looking at all the license plates. Mm-hmm. You know, that that press conference, you know, Barb obviously was in the room and I remember sitting there listening to Doug Carter and, you know, I've basically been doing true crime for like close to 15 years. And if you asked me to write out what a dramatic news conference would sound like, it would be this one. Like this, right. this superintendent, Doug Carter, he was saying things that we hear like in movies but like the reality of it is, yeah. it's like when you listen to police press conferences, you like, you know, spoiler alert, oftentimes they're really boring. They're very vanilla. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of new information. Like this was something out of a, of a, of a novel or a movie. Yeah. All, all the way. I mean, he's, 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 he's mentioning that, you know, the book, the shack, you know, there's yes. just, right. yes. there's, yeah, exa- that's exactly how I felt. Like it was like a movie script. Right. And it's the day after Easter and he's referencing God and mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, it was, you know, it was incredible to kind of listen to him and you know, at first and I've told Barb this, you know, the, before I had met Doug Carter, at first I thought I was almost like, well, I don't know if it's a little melodramatic or a little bit over the top. But then I met Doug Carter and we spent time with him and I was like, no, that's just how he is. Like he speaks that way whether okay. it's at a press conference or if he's having a conversation with you. He's a I mean, He's the superintendent of state police. He's the top cop in Indiana. He's an intense guy. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it really, you know, that's a testament to him in terms of like, that's how he is. Like, he doesn't change just because the cameras are on necessarily. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because that was my thought was because, I mean, he was almost taunting the the, the unknown killer in that press conference, right. you know, kind right. of calling him out. And it was, it was, yeah, it, it, it seemed to me that it was there were tactics and strategy put into that press conference because, yeah. you, because you know, like I said, when you guys went and, and Barb, you were there that it seemed like you were going to get this massive information, this big break in the case. And it's like, we've got another word for you in a different sketch and we're looking for a car it really wasn't outside of the theatrics. There wasn't a whole lot of new information given, but I think they made it feel that way just to get everybody there. Yeah. They definitely made a big production of what they were about to release. I mean, even, you know, walking into the room, the way they had the easel set up and the the red cover covering the new sketch. I mean, it was just, it was very dramatic and, and almost a made for TV event. Did that work to get his attention? You know, they also, I think we're really trying to appeal to whoever the family is, because if this person is from Delphi, lives, works in Delphi, they probably have family in Delphi. Right. And there were a lot of chaplains in the room. Were they there for the family to, you know, be the more sympathetic one to approach? Well, let me tell you my concern now about my son or, you Mm -hmm. know, my nephew or whoever. Yeah, I I would guess that there was a lot of strategy involved that we don't even, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were profilers or behavior analysts set up in, in places throughout the room watching reactions and i'm sure there was a lot of work that went into that but then after that press press conference nothing's really happened since then right no it's been very quiet they say that they are still very actively working the case that things are happening behind the scenes all the time but there is not anything happening in a public way that tells the average 
audience member that stuff is happening. Yeah, this past February was the third anniversary, and the first time they haven't had some kind of press briefing. You know, they mm-hmm. they the last two years they had had you know just to mark the occasion and kind of push the story back out into the public consciousness. Um, but this past year they had no press conference. Um, you know, we're approaching February. I don't think that there's any plans to have one for the fourth anniversary. Um, so the investigation has gone quiet. You know, I know people throw around the word cold case. I think that makes law enforcement kind of shudder because it implies that the case is just kind of sitting on a shelf somewhere. I have no reason to believe that this case is sitting on a shelf somewhere in the Carroll County Sheriff's oh, I don't Office either. or at the Indiana State Police. Right. You know, we have speculated for days and for months and close to a year now about, you know, what aren't they telling us? Because I think there's a ton that they aren't telling us, obviously. Um, but well, yeah. I, do th- I, do, I do push back a little bit when people characterize it as a cold case um, in the times I've heard that because it's just not, it doesn't rise to that. And they still have new tips coming in. I mean, they're still getting information from the public. Right. And and this is a case. So I, we deal with this a lot. As a matter of fact, I was um, when this episode airs, it would have been almost a month ago. But I had Chris Lambert on from the Your Own Backyard podcast talking about the Kristen Smart case. Yes, I listened to that podcast. Yeah, it's it, very well done. And the very well done. That is a case where it clearly is a cold case. I'm sure there's some tips. There's some things going on, but the police aren't working on that case. In this in this case, it's very different that. It's it's frustrating for viewers and listeners because we really I didn't I thought they just there just wasn't information I didn't realize that the police just aren't giving information and listening to right. your podcast you know is we're getting those little audio clips and things is in in you tell me if I'm wrong or what you think about this but my impression is that that Libby had that phone recording I'm I'm assuming through the duration of the attack from you know based or at least for quite some time because they've only released little snippets right what do you think about that they've only released snippets and i am getting the impression that it's not as long as most people think i've heard there's there's a lot of wild speculation online about the case there are a lot of people who say it's an eight or nine minute video in my conversations with the investigators i do not get that impression at all that it's anywhere near that long I wonder. I wonder how that worked because it seems like, based on the fact that we have a little bit of video and then mostly audio from it, and you guys had speculated that she might have put the you know started recording and then put the camera in her pocket and then continued. Right. And that's part. And that's part of what makes me think there's more to it. Is then like this attack starts happening um, once they realize they are in danger. I, I can't. I can't figure out in my mind at what point she's going to say, "Okay, well, I'm going to stop recording now." No, but. Things can happen to your phone to make your video stop. Right. If you get a phone call, mm-hmm. it'll stop your video. Right. Or if you bump it in your pocket, maybe you could get excited. Right. Yeah. Button, yeah. I, the other thing is that, you know, Barbara and I have talked ad nauseum about um, a lot of things, <laughs> um, but one of them being, you know, how much more video is there? And, you know, we talked about, you know, there may be a situation here where, you know, police have to face the possibility. That there's just not enough there for them to like you for them to yield any kind of new information. I mean, if you're right. recording and it's in your pocket, and this is kind of going into speculation, but if you're recording and you put the phone in your pocket, 
I mean, think about it. It's going to be a whole lot of like clothes hitting the microphone. Mm-hmm. You know, you may not hear anything really. And so is there more video on the phone? I think that the assumption is there's got to be some, you know, some additional video. But I think what really the question becomes is of the the additional video, really how useful is it? It just may right. not yield any new information. Right. The big thing for me was that, you know, we get, here's a, a still picture taken from the video of the guy on on the bridge and then some audio from the video. And then the police come out and say, that guy on the bridge is the guy. So, so there must be enough in there for them to connect the dots because they're not speculating. They're not, you know, you know, they're, they're not presenting it as, well, this could be the person that attacked them. It's at one point they get, they're saying, no, that is the person. So I think there's, there's gotta be more to where they see him coming up and the timing, whatever that they know that that man in the blue jacket, you know, was the, was the person who abducted them in the beginning there. So it just, it just seems like there's, there's more to, but then. You know, when I was listening, one thing I've always wondered about the case is, you know, I've just, without ever digging into it, was, well, what exactly happened to them? What were their injuries? Were they sexually assaulted? What happened? And then in listening to the podcast, I realized it's not that I just didn't know that. The police have never shared that. Never. They are so tight-lipped on this case, unusually tight-lipped, and they have never released anything at all about the cause of death, any kind of weapon that may or may not have been used. Um, the injuries, they've described it as, uh, you know, brutal, saying things like, you can't unsee what we saw that day. But no, we don't know any detail about what happened. To even the, the fa- they've never even shared it with the family. No, I, I think, I think the families have some more information in that area. But I don't think that they have the full picture either. Um, I think that uh, the state police, from the very beginning, locked down the details of this case. And even from what I understand, investigators within the various departments that are investigating this say that even they can't get information on it. Unless you are specifically on the team investigating this, you know, it's not like the file cabinet is left open with this file in it and anybody in law enforcement can walk in and see that. Right. They're keeping it down to a very tight circle of investigators, which they say will protect, you know, a false confession, which happens in high profile cases. They're saying that it also is going to protect the prosecution when they finally do make an arrest. They want to make sure that they get the guy and are able to prosecute successfully. And so they say that by releasing those things, it's going to interfere with that. There are a lot of people who disagree with that. um, And other cases where that information is given out much more freely. But um, I don't get the impression from the state police that they are going to change that position anytime soon. There's a, you know, and I don't want to sound too hyperbolic here, but there, to me, there's an unprecedented cone of silence in this case uh, Mm -hmm. around the people who know the details. And the other thing to consider is, you know, this isn't just the Indiana State Police. The Carroll County Sheriff's Department is um, you know, they, they've said that they are technically the lead agency on this, on this case because it happened there, but you've got the Carroll County Sheriff's office, the Indiana state police, the FBI was involved early on. So you've got multiple agencies that are involved. And despite that, 
everyone is on the same page, which is do not leak information. And right, and, and that's it's just you know we use the analogy of Barb and I have kind of walked up to this wall of information, and like we right. just can't get it. We're trying to go over, around, under. It's just there's no way through the wall. They've just put it up. Right, and that's you know as I was saying earlier, it, it's it's very frustrating for you know those of us in media production for audiences and for all the um, you know the the at home sleuths that are out there that have done great work in so many cases that the information out there, but as an investigator for me, I actually think that it, it is a brilliant move. It's, it's not done enough. I've been a part of investigate investigations and worked on um, investigations where this wasn't done and it, it did cause problems down. And you just don't see this very, very often where they actually do keep all the information quiet. So you don't know what's happening. And and the fact that all of those agencies all agree that that's what they're going to do, I'm sure there's there's good reason for it. I tend to feel like there's probably a lot of forensic evidence connected to this case that they haven't shared with us. It may be part of the reason why they're keeping it locked down because they feel like if they get a suspect, they've got something to compare with them and something to try to connect them to it. But but whew, it's frustrating when you're trying to wrap your head around the case to not even know. You know, it's hard to even. Pro- you guys had a, an F- a former FBI profiler on the show. Yeah, Mary Ellen O'Toole. Yeah, I was wondering from her. I, I assume she wasn't part of the team and doesn't know what happened because she was kind of speaking generally, so she doesn't know what happened either. No, 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 no. Um, she uh, had been with the FBI for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Is retired, and um, yeah, we used her as an analyst. And you know, she also talked about how unusual it is to be this tied down with their information. It does seem that it is something more routine for Indiana State Police, that it's more in keeping with their style of mm-hmm. how they do things with the high-profile cases. Um, but it is very frustrating. But, you know, um, it, it's sort of similar to the, the evidentiary value of the photo or the video. There's only so much there. You can't get any clearer. You can't get right. any closer to that. You can't enlarge it enough to see some detail because it's just not there on the quality of the video, you know, and what isn't captured by the camera, you can't uncover with an app or, you know, an AI program, which a lot of people online try to do. And it's the same say, with ah, the audio. You can see the face. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I, I asked when we first started this entire project. I'd reached out to an audio forensics person and their 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 statement to me was essentially, you know, we need the original raw file so we can hear it in its most, you know, unmanipulated form. Um, but even then, there's only so far down the rabbit hole they can go before it just becomes, you know, degraded. And so, right. you know, it's just like if you print off a picture off of a printer and you keep zooming in, at some point it just becomes dots. Right. And, and, and that's the thing that people don't realize with pictures and with audio is you can't create data that's not there. Exactly. You know, for all, and with audio, you know, you can, you, and of course, we all work in audio. You can, you can remove things from it. You know, yeah. you can take away some background and ambient noise to try to make it clearer, but you can't add to it. You can't add to the, you know, the voice that's garbled. You can't really right. garble it. Right. Well, and it's funny you mentioned that because that's kind of a metaphor for a lot of the elements of this story. You know, Barb and I had so many debates, heated debates even about, you know, the sketch. It's like, well, 
but they look alike. And I'm like, well, do you think that, or do you want to, th- do you want to think that? Or, right. well, when I look at the picture of the guy on the bridge, there's a hat there. And it's like, well, do you think there's a hat there? Or did you read it somewhere and go, oh, you know what? I think there's a hat there. And I, like, there's that happened so many different times where it's like, right. you have to be as unbiased as possible. It's almost like the, the, the most accurate and pure assessment of what you see in those photos and in that audio will be the first time you hear it. Because after that, you will hear people say, oh, well, then this was said, or you will, you know, oh, well, that actually looks like, you know, a rope. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess it could be. And it's like, well, at that point, you're biased. Right. Right. And so it's so frustrating because, I mean, we just went round and round. (laughs) Right. You know, the sketches are another part is, is what, you know, part of the reason why I think there's a lot that police are actively working. And there is a, so much more information we don't know because there's no way they could generate that sketch, either sketch, from that video, which, which to me it indicates, and I think they've even said as much, and you guys mentioned on the podcast, um, that, that see, I, I'll let you finish here in a second, see? but I, I, think, <laughs> I think that there, that there <laughs> are witnesses that have told them that I saw a person in the area that that looked like this, and that is what the sketch is generated from. I just don't see how a sketch artist could generate anything from the image that they saw on the on that camera. There, there are apparently witnesses that have provided information that have led to these sketches, but I think that the first sketch that was released, the older looking man, mm-hmm. I think some of that also came from what perhaps an expert, I don't know, somebody looking at the video saw yeah I, I i wonder that too but then i, I when i when you look at that picture it's like the, the person has a goatee and the the detail in their eyes like you can't see anything and like none of that is in that picture you can't see any of that which is why i think it's kind of like video plus witnesses equals sketch it's kind of like all of those ingredients right. into one bucket sure right. that they're putting all all of that together I don't think I don't think the second sketch looks at all like the person on the bridge. Yeah, well, <laughs> well he doesn't have the hat in the right. It the just right it does not jive to me, and I, you know, it never has. Yeah, I, I, I personally think those probably came more from witness statements, and then maybe Drew, you're right that maybe they blended that with, you know, what they see with the picture on the bridge. I, you know, I was surprised the new sketch. Most people think looks younger, and then they kind of change the age range to that eighteen to forty year old age right. range. But when I look at, and I, I did kind of what you were talking about, Drew, just show my wife that picture last night, just to uh, just get a first impression because I've been warped by everything everyone's ever said about it. Yeah, uh, and she, she wasn't familiar with the case, and the first thing she says is like, "No, that's an older person because of the clothes," which I, was what I thought. I just couldn't see a eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old wearing. You know that jacket and that kind of jeans and and which which is you know it's all bullshit. That's just what I think. But it's, you know that was my impression too. Was that's not a younger person just because of the way they're dressed. Your thoughts? Well, but you know, <laughs> is is it a disguise? Is he right? Per, is he purposely wearing something that doesn't look like what he would normally wear? Mm-hmm. I've all, often wondered, suspected that you know he had a bag hidden somewhere with a change of clothes. And that what he wore to commit the crime is not what he wore when he left. I have no evidence of that. But 
you know, I've, I've wondered if he dumped those clothes somewhere. I know a bunch of blue jackets have been turned into the sheriff's department and Indiana state police. Um, they say they don't have the jacket, but they say that, yeah, many, many jackets have been turned into us. A lot of people think the jacket looks like a work jacket. So, you know, maybe it wasn't his personal style at all. And it was clothes that he wore to work. You know, you mentioned they, um, you know, maybe like had a bag out there or anything, kind of getting into logistics a little bit. I finally, the other night was looking at the actual, you know, satellite imagery and, and locations on the maps. And one thing that seems very odd to me is they're talking about a car that was parked at the abandoned CPS building, which is west-ish of where the bridge is at. And then right. there's the, the bridge, and then the bodies are found down the hill. It would be east of the bridge, down to the creek. And then from what I understand, then back out of the creek on the other side a little ways to the east is where the bodies are found. That's interesting to me as far as the, the point of egress, because it would look to me you know, if you're looking at, at, a, at a profile of the scene, if, if someone just committed these murders, they're trying to get out of there, the path out would be out towards that cemetery, which if it was right. planned, you'd kind of think, well, the, maybe that's where the car was stashed or that's where, that's where it got out. But then if, it, if the car is at the, at the CPS building, that's a hell of a long walk, either down the road, right, after you just killed somebody, or back down this path right past all these people walking. What are your guys' thoughts and or theories on the the car being at the the CPS place? One of the interesting things is that you know that car that's been referenced by law enforcement has generally not been referenced since they talked about it at that press conference, and I'm not sure anybody really knows why they've kind of moved on. Well, and I don't want to say moved on, but why they haven't kind of revisited that. Um, I uh. will say. You know, and Barb and I have talked about this. I mean, we've talked about everything, so apologies if I keep saying that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about the point of egress. If, if the killer had a car that they were using to get away, they essentially had two options of where to leave the car. You could put it at the old CPS building where a car being there isn't terribly uncommon or... Mm-hmm. The car and knowing that road, the car is like on the side of the road and looks a little more odd and out of place. So, right. you know, if if the killer was like, I need to leave a car here to get away, there's really one, two options. Leave it at a building where it's conceivable a car could be or leave it like on the side of the road where it looks really kind of random and suspicious. Is, is there any just I couldn't tell from looking at the just the overhead views is there any possibility where that cemetery is that a car could that someone could drive a car to the back of the cemetery and park in the back where it wasn't in view of the road and you wouldn't be seen from the road if you were parked at the back end you know if you're looking at the map the cemetery has sort of a u shape and if you're at the bottom of the u yeah a car parked there we've done it and we've tested it you can stand on that road you don't see that car there at all so you would be completely unseen back there now, one thing I'm a little unclear about is from there, the image of him, I've always been mixed up on directions, right? So when they take the video of him walking across the bridge, is he walking, would be from that direction, from the south end of the bridge heading to the north-ish I or the other way? I believe that they say that he is walking 
towards the south end of the bridge, towards okay. the end where he says down the hill and they go down the hill and across the creek. Okay, so that would mean like Abby and Libby had already crossed the bridge and were looking back at it and he was coming from the same direction they came? Yeah, which is, you know, in the podcast, we sort of laid out a theory that he could have started on the south end of the bridge, mm-hmm. passed them on the bridge, right. and then turned around when he realized, all right, I'm going to go for it. Uh, nobody's around. He already knows nobody's at that south end of the bridge, and he can, you know, herd them back that direction. That makes sense. And in theories wise, I could sit here, I could talk to you guys about this for six hours. I'm going to try to keep this. Uh, we could talk about it for six hours too. We talked about it for six months. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you, I, I was kind of doing similarly to what you guys did towards the end of the podcast where you guys kind of laid out your theories based on the evidence. And I'm trying to, to, you know, look at kind of a behavior analysis to figure out, you know, who we're looking for. And there's there's a few elements here. One thing that you guys had mentioned, and it kind of came from your discussions with the with the FBI profiler, is you know the different types of you know whether this is a predatory person who went there with the intention of attacking and and doing whatever he did. We don't really know to Abby and Libby other than kill them, and it was just looking for any random victim, right? You know, just a victim of opportunity, or if someone went there. And specifically was looking for those two victims. And the other option is that it just all happened all in, a, in happenstance. It was a crime of opportunity without a plan. I don't think, and I don't know if any anybody ag- agrees with this, but I don't think that was the case for the sole purpose of there are two victims, two two teenage victims, and he was able to control them while moving them for a, a quarter or half a mile. That That indicates to me that he had some he had to have had a weapon of some kind you know th- this case has a lot of west memphis 3 at vibes. least one yeah this case has a lot of west memphis 3 vibes to it mm-hmm. but you know that and, and there was kind of saying well how does one person control three victims there well in that case you're dealing with eight-year-olds and yeah. if you have like a parental figure or an authority figure it's pretty easy with your words to control them not to eighth graders you know to to keep them in control so it it tells me that he had at least one weapon, some kind of weapon. I would, I would guess a gun, honestly, because even with a knife with two people, it would still be hard to control them because they know if they can outrun him, they can get away from a knife. You right. can't outrun a gun. Exactly. So, so that, that indicates that this person was there in order, you know, planning to commit a crime. And the question becomes, was he, was he after these particular victims or any victims? And then the part where I think I think maybe you and I have a little bit of a divide is that you would, I think you guys had theorized that uh, that you know they were victims of opportunity that they found as you just said that you know like well here they are there's nobody around here's my chance. Or well, I tend to disagree a little bit with that in, in the fact that I don't think it is the perfect opportunity. I don't think the thing you're looking for is two people. It's very very difficult to. You know, for a perpetrator to control two people, and that's what I'm having a hard time wrapping my my brain around. Was especially as we're saying, there's there's people in and out. You know, there's a lot of people walking on the path, a lot of young kids out there. Why choose two when there's a much more chance, likely chance of one of them getting away, of one of them, uh, of of two people overtaking you? Right, but you're also, I think, you know, using logic and your sort of healthy brain that doesn't do these things to find the logic in that. 
I saw an interview with Edmund Kemper and he was talking, uh, he's, he's the co-ed killer from right, California right. in the seventies. And he said that he was out driving one day and he had no plan to, to do anything. He was mm-hmm. just out driving, but his MO was he would approach co-eds near the Santa Cruz university campus and get them in his car and take them places. And he said, he's driving down the street and he sees these two girls on the sidewalk and he pulled over and said, Hey, you guys going to the library? And they said, yeah. And he said, so am I, get in. And within seconds, he had one of them completely subdued and the other under control. And, you know, I was kind of blown away by that, that this is a man who, even though he's he's capable of doing that, he had no plan to do that. And very quickly, he decided to do it and did it. Right. And, you know, the a lot of the the analysts and experts that we talk to say, the chances are more likely that the person who did this is someone who planned it in detail, picked the spot, maybe even hunted there on other occasions oh, yeah, I and agree. chose not to act for whatever reason. And on that day, the conditions were just perfect for him. The other right. thing is I, I, I would push back a little bit on the difficulty of controlling two teen girls. And I only say that because I, I think on the surface that you're right, that it, it would appear that that would be difficult. But if you look at it a little bit closer, um, I think it's hard for us to speculate on what fear does. Um, I think that, you know, there's obviously the fight or flight and, you know, and getting to know the families, they've kind of painted a picture for us of these two girls and Abby Libby was kind of the um, feisty. Um, d- she, I remember her teachers talking about how she, she would give her teachers kind of a hard time in a real joking kind of a way. She was just kind of a mm-hmm. a tough, tough young girl. Abby was a little more subdued, I think, and a little more shy. And I think you know when we talk about controlling two teens with personalities like that, I think that we kind of overestimate. The, or underestimate the influence of what fear does. Right. And it, you know, it may be a situation where, and, you know, we're kind of getting into speculation, obviously, but, you know, Abby being kind of a shy person may have been deferring to Libby in terms of, you know, what do we do here? You know, right. How do we react? Like, how do we, right. how do we do this? And it may have been a situation where Libby was like, you know, we're going to stick together and we'll, you know, so she's taking her cues. I guess what I'm saying is that it, it, it's not inconceivable that one individual could have manipulated and controlled. Oh, certainly not. Girls. Yeah, it, it absolutely could happen. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so I don't dis- disagree with that at all. Right. I'm just trying to wrap my, my head around, you know, like you mentioned the example of Kemper. You know, it, w- it was a different situation, too, in there where right. he knew, you know, his crime scene was once I get two people inside of my closed car right. and point a gun it's at them, over. I have control as opposed to being outside. But then again, the other element of this is we don't know what happened at the crime scene. So if we, right. if we, if we knew, for example, we, at the crime scene that they were both tied up, well, now it makes sense. You know, you're going to tie her up and then I'm going to tie you up. Yeah. Or if it was a, a situation where they're both quickly murdered and then, and then what, say whatever happened after that was, were things that he was doing to the bodies post-mortem. That's a whole different p- picture too. Yeah. It, whereas if it's a scene where, you know, there's they're both sexually assaulted and then killed without restraint. Then it becomes like, well, that's obviously extremely difficult. But either of those scenarios point to, as you said, some planning where there's a site picked out. Right. 
Well, and also remember the, the, the you know, approach happens on this bridge. Mm-hmm. They're 63 feet up over a creek. Right. Straight down. There's no sides. There's no railings. There's no fences. Nowhere for them to run. There's missing railroad ties, big gaps. You know, it would have been difficult to take off running as well. So I think where he chose to approach them was the perfect spot to get two girls under control because right. they don't have very many options on where they can go. Right. They only have one direction until they get off the bridge. And right. at, that, at that point, he, he has them. So, yeah. And maybe they thought, you know, I, I could see myself thinking, comply until I get off the bridge and then make my escape. Right. And maybe that wasn't possible at that point. Yeah. I think that, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of, of theories that we could, again, we could talk about it. I, I could, I could talk about it forever. You know, the, the, the fact that they went through, through the water, they can have wet clothes. There's just all these different things that just are, are racking my brain. But I, I think for right now, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and I'll direct people to, to go check out the down the hill podcast. It's fantastic. It's very detailed. You hear from police officers you hear from prosecutors you hear from family members there's it's 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 very well done gets very much in depth and i certainly hope that that at some point we get it's only a three or four year old case now that i hope that at some point we finally get a resolution to this um and you guys before i let you go you have you're not done with the delphi case you have another project no we're not in fact uh drew and i just got back uh about two weeks ago from delphi we were there getting new material new interviews and we're putting that together as a television special that's going to air around the anniversary on HLN. So that'll be just about two weeks from now. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you, I, Drew and Barb. No, that'll be in f- two months. Two months. We're well, in our we're in our Truth and Justice time machine right now. Uh, right now yes. it is January thirty first. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> also, let me just add this. Let me just add one last thing. Um, uh, you know, we talk a lot about kind of the grisly details of this story, and you know trying to figure out what happened it is important to remember these two kids we have gotten to know the families pretty well and as a result those kids have kind of you know we talked about these blurry images like we've got a pretty sharp picture of who these kids were now having talked to their friends and family and teachers libby seemed like a trip she was kind of a a ham always telling jokes abby was you know just kind of seemed to be kind of like a sweet shy kid into crafts and butterflies and stuff. And I just wanted to make sure we mentioned that because, you know, I think a lot of times in the true crime space, we gloss over that because we're jumping to the the facts and the details and trying to figure out what happened. But these were funny, good, sweet kids. And it just sucks, really, for lack of a better term. And they were doing nothing wrong. And they did everything right. And this is still unsolved. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, 
Please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. Oh,